Welcome to the Akiyama Brothers Song to Screen Podcast, where two film composers from Southern California talk about the music in film and theater. Yeah, we do. In this episode, Mark and Landon discuss their thoughts regarding this year's Oscar nominations and make predictions which will win Best Original Score. 2018. Find out more at AkiyamaMusic.com. Hi. How's it going? Hi, everybody. Hi, Mark. So what is this, our third episode? Yeah, this is our third episode. Cool. So, um, so how you doing? First off, I'm good. I'm tired. Yeah, long day. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. Not bad. Not bad. Mm, not bad. <clears throat> um. So first off, how about Wait. we thank everybody for taking a listen to our first and second episodes? Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys are still giving us feedback, so we always appreciate that. Uh, it sounds like and the the I noticed the little popularity bar on the second episode is more popular or more filled than the first episode. Oh yeah, the popularity so I don't really know bar what that means, but the one on iTunes. I don't know. I think I guess it just means that more people listen through the Greatest iTunes? Showman episode than the first one. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Which I'm is a- surprising because that one was almost four times as long as the first episode. Yeah, yeah. I. Don't- Oh, and also, one thing that we forgot to mention, uh, the last follow-up, we might be doing some interviews down the line. Um, oh, yeah. We asked a couple people, so mm-hmm. we're going to try to get some interviews lined up. Yeah, most of them sound pretty excited, and they're already listeners of the podcast, and you know they sound excited to be on, because most of them are going to be actors or other film composers that we know of, just around the San Diego mm-hmm. area. Um, a few of our yeah, friends. Some, some of our friends who work in uh, musical theater around yeah. San Diego. and then So you have that to look forward to as well as the other content that we're working on. We have a, we have a few ideas for our next coming episodes and we're pretty excited about them. We're thinking about doing one about VR, how music can you know, really influence any virtual reality. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. It's... It gets complicated. Yeah, think of it as a new frontier for music. And, yeah. And then storytelling. Yeah. Well, but speaking of, you know, new frontiers and movies and how music plays into all that, the Oscar nominations this year, a lot of them made a splash. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like Shape of Water. <laughs> exactly. Is that where you're going with that? That's where I'm going. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> good segue. Thank you, thank you. I, I came up with that on the spot, so I'm pretty proud of myself. But anyway, Shape of Water. I wouldn't be. Okay, that's fine. I am. I you have low are. standards. <laughs> that's obvious. Yeah. Thanks. Um, Shape of Water. Anyway, that the let's see. There were there were five five scores nominated for all the Oscar nominations. One of them is Shape of Water. The other one is Three Billboards. Um, Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah, Three Billboards. Say the whole title, dude. Sorry, sorry. Phantom Thread, Dunkirk, and also Star Wars The Last Jedi. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're thinking we're just going to go through each one, kind of talk about um, our thoughts on the scores. We'll make some predictions down the line, and we'll also be talking about the songs that were nominated. There were five songs that were nominated to be um, their best nominated origin- for the original song. Yeah. yeah, best original song, including one we talked about last week. 
Yes, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. So starting off, how about the you shape? Start with Shape of Water, I guess. Yeah, why not? Okay. What'd you think of it, Mark? Well, this. Uh, let me see. I saw it in theaters. Mm-hmm. I liked it. Yeah, this let was a story the, of. It was a story of a. Uh, um, I don't know how should we describe this. A a uh, a sea creature, a water creature, kind of like a romantic monster movie. Yeah. Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, Guillermo del Toro was a director. Alexander Desplat was the composer for The Shape of Water. Um, let me see. Yeah, and I was reading up on it, and yeah. this this movie, and um, was inspired by the uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Guillermo del Toro, during his childhood fantasies, he was watching the creature from the Black Lagoon, mm. and he wished that the monster fell in love with julie adams instead of trying to kill and eat her <laughs> so <laughs> um when i first saw that's, yeah when okay, i first saw the trailer for this movie i thought it was like a spin-off of hellboy but it, it turned out to be nothing like that the asset as they refer to the creature it bears more resemblance to the creature from the black lagoon lagoon instead of so this- abe sabian from hellboy so this wasn't supposed to be a prequel at all sort of thing? No, no, or it wasn't. Was, it was not. It was a standalone movie. Oh, okay. Just completely inspired from Del Toro's imagination and the Black Lagoon. He did use the same actor, though. Doug Jones for the amphibian guy in Shape of Water and the guy who played Abe in Hellboy. And so oh, Doug Jones, Yeah, Doug Jones yeah. is known for doing a lot of these... Um, like creature movies where he has to have a lot of prosthetic makeup on his face and everything because he's a real right. tall skinny guy so they can add a lot of um like structure uh prosthetics to his face and everything he was also yeah, the so guy up. yeah he was also the guy who played the what is his name in hocus pocus billy i think the zombie oh that was him that was <laughs> that's that's a that's a that's a throwback and that's my fun <laughs> piece of trivia <laughs> yeah but yeah this guy so he's they use the same actor but i guess no mm-hmm. relation to the characters at all yeah but i guess i don't know I, it did kind of feel like he moved in a lot of the same way as abe from hellboy it, it felt similar yeah well they're both amphibian men so i don't know but anyway let's talk about the music that's, that's true yeah so what'd you think off the bat just you know general thoughts I don't know. It was very light. Um, like, a, had mm. a lot of waltz waltz qualities to it. Um, yeah, actually, the two main themes. Dancing also were, played a thing in it. Or waltz. Yeah. Well, because yeah. the two... Like tap, tap dancing. Yeah. And the two characters mm-hmm. dance together as they try yeah. to connect and everything. And Yeah, I thought it was like... It, the film had... Uh, it was. It felt indie, like an indie movie, almost, because... It's set in America, and yet you have this European-sounding music. Yeah, it kind of had like a a French sort of... Well, that's because the composer is French, but it had a uh-huh. like sort of French indie film quality to the sound of the music. Um, yeah. He used a lot of harp and accordion and kind of... Um, yeah, whistling played a big part, a yeah, big part of this, in this score. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that for Elisa's theme? Eliza's? 
Eliza, was that for her theme yeah. the whistling? Yeah, that was Eliza's theme. I, that was like her main. It was like whistling, um, whistling flutes and piano for mm. for Eliza, yeah. and then for the creature, it was mostly all accordion, and you know that was the main instrument, accordion. But yeah, but uh, Desplat, he wanted the accordion to sound like a bandoneon. Yeah, which is an like an Italian like uh, tango instrument, piazzola, Astor piazzola yeah. kind of style, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. More like so, Astor piazzola. He's known for his tango suites. Yeah, um, which we played one of them. It, we did with Landon on yeah. guitar, and then I, me on vibes. That was fun. Uh huh. That was for your recital. Hard. One of your recitals. Yeah, one of my my junior recital. Yeah. Yeah, I th- yeah. That piece I had to work uh, all semester on. Yeah. I remember. Now mm-hmm. we don't remember how to play it, unfortunately. Yes. Someday. Yeah. That's we'll a, pick it it's back a up. shame. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the the accordion, it the accordion it's, it's got a it's a bigger bigger instrument than the bandoneon, which is I think the bandoneon is only about half the size of a regular accordion. Yeah, it's sort of um, a hexagon instrument, the smaller um you still it's still yeah. uh, an instrument you pump air through to get sound through the keys and everything but it's smaller think like right. the uh, lady in the tramp spaghetti scene that's the the instrument that the what's his name well, the restaurant owner plays the night, yeah exactly such yeah. a beautiful night yeah and they call <laughs> it bella notte yeah yeah <laughs> but what did um, what did Desplat say he was how did he try to get the underwater sound throughout the whole score? Because that was something he tried to. Uh, yeah, it was. Was that with the harp, right? Mm-hmm. He used a harp, and if you're listening to it with headphones, the soundtrack with headphones, you hear it mostly in the first track, "The Shape of Water," and he uses the harp, and it kind of it oscillates back and forth between the left and right channels. Oh. So you kind of get uh, this this constant movement, and this was one of the things that Desplat tried to really tried hard to do because the whole movie, the the camera's moving all the time, so it feels like you're underwater, mm. or that's what Del Toro was trying to go for. And so Desplat he wanted to mimic something like that, where there's always movement, um, you know, a lot like water, because water is the main element in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the shape of it. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so okay, right here, uh, Desplat says, he wanted to reflect how the camera is always in motion. Uh, even, the ed- even the editing shows that the camera is always in motion, so the music also has to flow like it's always in motion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, the like, the plucking harp kind of mimics the sound when you're underwater where like sound is kind of muffled yeah and it's hard to tell exactly what direction it's coming from so the harp it's like a real gentle plucking uh arpeggiated plucking that he uses so that kind of also i thought added to the like underwater mysterious quality of the Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of the tracks and also i think the whistling plays a huge part into it because the whistling is part of um, eliza's main theme and you know, it's actually Desplat doing the whistling himself. So if you're listening oh, yeah. to the track, 
I oh, think cool. it's, it shows up in Shape of Water and also Eliza's theme. That's mm-hmm. that's uh, the composer whistling throughout the whole thing, and he's got a really good whistle. Like I've never heard anybody whistle like this before. What? But it makes sense because he used to play flute. It kind of had a gritty, wasn't it? It was kind of gritty. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't a pure tone sounding whistle. It was. Yeah, he said. It, I don't know what I'm saying. When he was recording the whistling, it, the movie's already very emotional, so he didn't want to push the emotion too much. He had to keep kind of keep it centered a little bit. Um, mm. So you, so he starts adding a little bit more vibrato as he's whistling, and he kind of tames his oh, emotion okay. throughout the throughout each track because he's really yeah. he's letting most of the most of the scenery and the story tell the emotion and the music accompanies it and follows and flows. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, the reason why he chose the accordion to use, um, because it's, it's a South American instrument and the creature is from South America. So he wanted those two to go, two to go hand in hand um, and kind of play off of each other. But instead of more of a traditional accordion sound, he wanted it to be played like a how a tango master would play mm-hmm. the bandoneon because the creature is from South America. Yeah. Sorry, my bad. The accordion is not from South America. It's the bandoneon that's from South America. Hmm. Yeah, so so the accordion plays these tangled phrases um, that it's also accompanied by a lot of flute and harp. And then the yeah. music, the music, or the, I should say, the, sorry, the whistling is meant to be light and carefree because Eliza is light and carefree and so she also whistles in the film while she's waiting in the for movie. the yeah, yeah. in the movie while she's waiting for the bus yeah mm-hmm. so right away she she actually whistles the one of the main melodies yeah and then right away that becomes her theme throughout the whole film which is cool because well I think because at the beginning um, the first song, "The Shape of Water," it's a very distinct melody, and there's whistling in it. Um, Desplat whistles the main theme, and then it's transitioned or mimicked through piano and a few other instruments. And then you hear Eliza's theme a, f- a few scenes later. But by the end yeah. of the film, those two themes, those two melodies, get blurred together um, to kind of. Her theme and then the the creatures theme. Yeah, right? her th- her theme and the creatures. So those two elements blend together. Um, so you know, because they basically spoiler alert, they basically end up you know living in the water together. together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a good score. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, it I, it it took me by surprise because I thought it's it was had a kind of a like a timeless sort of quality to it Mm -hmm. yeah it's really pretty well that is that one of your favorites i'm not gonna tell you until the end you're not gonna tell me okay (laughs) (laughs) okay great yeah but uh you you also watched three billboards let's move on though yeah right three billboards yeah the score for that one was composed by carter burwell Mm -hmm. um yeah what else what else has he done um 
Oh yeah, he did True Grit. Okay, so three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. The score for that was composed by Carter Burwell, mm-hmm. and he's done stuff for Fargo, True Grit, uh, Carol, uh, the stop motion movie Anomalisa. Uh, what else? Right. He's done a lot of TV stuff. He's done a, one of the Twilight ones. Um, but anyway, so. Yeah, his thing. Let me see. Um, I read in one interview for this film, he thought that the the movie was edited so well and like the way it was written, it didn't. He didn't feel like it needed music really. And. Yeah. He didn't put so, much music in it. <laughs> there, is, there really isn't much score in it. Um, a lot of the music in it is licensed licensed songs for the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me see. Yeah, but he has he did write one main theme for the Mildred character. Yeah. And he kind of does variations the, of it throughout the Mildred whole film. Mildred goes to war. Yeah, that ends up being the main the theme, which it was, yeah. I don't know, to me it was like kind of a stomp and clap march. Yeah, it kind of, it, it kind of gives you the idea of like, you kind of picture a cowboy walking into town. Yeah. Um. Like one of those something you can't really tell if it's rob a bank or if he's a good guy or, or save a bad somebody. guy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. It doesn't exactly let you on to what his intentions are, but, um, yeah, it's kind of, it felt like a spaghetti Western. Yeah. Like yeah, a kind of score. Mm-hmm. Neo Morricone style spaghetti Western. Yeah. Cause he uses a lot of mandolin, uh, mm-hmm. like tremolo mandolin and the, I, the stomping, stomp clap kind of thing yeah that was in there and then um there weren't many individual themes for each character it was mostly just that no that main yeah. title theme and then kind of does a different doom. stuff different stuff with it throughout yeah he kind of he breaks down the theme and yeah in certain segments and everything and Mm-hmm. I don't. There really wasn't much music for it. I'm not exactly. Yeah, it was it was sparse. Um, but I think yeah. he did, he did have a theme for for soulfulness. Um, like a, he said, a soulful theme for loss. And then there was also mm-hmm. one um, a theme. I think it was called "My Dear Anne," um, which was yeah. the theme for death. Oh yeah. When. When something bad happens to one of the characters, I'm trying not yeah. to spoil anything. Yeah, I don't, I don't, how much of the film should we give away? <laughs> you know, I think we should try not to give away too much because we're not going to go as in depth as we did in our previous episode because we have a lot of material to cover this time. Mm, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this one had kind of the the southern sort of spaghetti western um kind of sound to it and yeah for the film even though there's not much music in it uh what he did in the film still supported the 
story and I'm not sure I would have done anything differently. I think it worked for the film, and yeah, I don't. I kind of yeah. agree. The film didn't need much, um, and where where he ended up putting putting the music was a pretty good choice. Um, I actually would have, yeah, I actually would have preferred though a little bit more of an underscore kind of throughout. Yeah, kind of, to kind of help me. Help me so they used in. a lot of songs, mm-hmm. like in the end credits of the film. All those, most of it was all songs. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, licensed songs and everything. But so that was three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. That was a very character-driven movie with Mildred and the sheriff and Woody yeah. Harrelson as the sheriff. And yeah, she was kind of a she was a badass character. She was, yeah, she was fun to watch. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I guess speaking of licensing and, you know, original songs and artists, our next composer who did Phantom Thread, he's actually Johnny the guitar. Greenwood. Yes, Johnny Greenwood. He's the guitarist from Radiohead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he did Phantom Thread, which is about... The life, which is about this, the life of this fashion designer, and uh, here I got you right here. So let's see the bio for uh, Phantom Thread. It's in the 1950s London. A middle-aged courtier, Reynolds Woodcock, is at the height of his fame and creative power. Um, his sister Cyril helps to manage his precisely ordered world. But when he falls for a younger, high-spirited waitress, Reynolds finds that his new muse has transformed his life in more meaningful ways than he thought possible. So that's the the gist. Yeah. I thought when I was listening to this and watching it, I thought it was it felt very traditional. You know, like it was a traditional orchestrations. Um, yeah, a lot of piano, a yeah. lot of piano, a lot of piano, a lot of uh, quartet and orchestral sounds yeah I know this it was kind of out of the norm of Johnny Greenwood's like other stuff yeah aside from you know playing for Radiohead actually this is Johnny's Johnny Greenwood's um, first nomination his first Oscar nomination for a score oh yeah mm-hmm yeah I don't know what else to talk about this one. I didn't like it. Okay. Is that how you felt Sorry. about it? Right. I didn't so, like it. So much for waiting till the end. <laughs> I'm just... Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. Well, I, you you want to talk about one that you did like, then? Uh, how many are left? We got two left. Oh, the two big ones? Mm-hmm. Well, the two... Yeah, the two big heavy hitter guys. Yeah. <laughs> Hans Zimmer for Dunkirk. This is what, his one, two, three, four, five, sixth film with Christopher Nolan? Yeah, something they like that. They did the Dark Knight Dark Knight trilogy together, and then they did Inception and Interstellar. Uh, I really like the music for Interstellar. Mm-hmm. With the, the whole 
the pipe organ they recorded. Right. Yeah, he was nominated for that yeah. one for best musical score. He was nominated for Inception. Didn't win. Didn't win. Nominated for Sherlock Holmes. Didn't win. Gladiator. Didn't win. Didn't win. Prince of Egypt. He was nominated. Didn't win. The red, the thin red line. Didn't win. Um, as good as it gets. He was nominated. Didn't win. The Preacher's Wife nominated. Didn't win. Okay, okay. Let's oh, not go through wait, his wait. losses. Then. <laughs> Lion King, though. Lion King in 1994. Guess what? He won. Yeah, he won. Yeah, I know. And then the last one is Rain Man, which he was nominated but did not win. So he only has one Oscar win among... Like nine nominations or something, yeah. Yeah, it looks like 11 or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Whatever, 11. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, sure. But Dunkirk, I yeah, thought... so for Dunkirk... It was a good story. Really good, really good movie. Um, shoot, I'm giving away what I thought already. No, that I, sorry, that's regarding the movie, not the score. <laughs> it was really intense, the score. Mm-hmm. Um, so this... Let me see, what should we talk about? If you haven't seen the movie, the story is about... Um, uh, the, the, I guess the battle around Dunkirk... Um, or the evacuation of Dunkirk. Oh, yeah, thank you, the evacuation where hundreds of thousands of British and Allied troops are trapped by German forces on the beaches of Dunkirk in northern France. The terrain yeah. precludes uh, the use of large ships, compelling the military to request that civilian boats join the rescue efforts. While soldiers endure attacks and wait in the fear, the RAF provides cover for the hundreds of small boats sailing the 26 miles from Britain. So basically, they're crossing the English Channel. Um, they can't send the large ships because those keep getting bombed destroyed, and destroyed. So their only hope are these small civilian vessels. Yeah. Um, you know, to basically... Yeah. It, it, it sounds like 26 miles takes about, I think, half a day or something. Yeah, so the way the, the movie channel. was broken up, the way the movie's broken up, there's like three different timelines. Mm, thank you. Um, the they go the mole, which is like the the beach, the beach, mm-hmm. and so that starts that timeline starts uh, one week or tells of one week um, oh. is set a one week timeline, and then the sea is the second one, and that starts one day before they're all like rescued and stuff and then the third timeline is the air the spitfire um the spitfire planes and that's one hour before the like film's conclusion there where they're picked up and everything um so so there's the mole the the sea and the air yeah i think i got it so there's three timelines and then they sort of weave them in and out uh between that so one of the things Hans Zimmer said was Chris Nolan, the way he wrote the script was already set up to tell like a roadmap of the arc uh, that the the score would take because he broke it up into these three different uh, three different timelines. So I guess you could kind of think of it as sort of like a three-part symphony sort of thing. Um Uh, yeah, kind of like a, an A, so that, a B section, and then uh, A again. Or yeah, or, no. or are you thinking you're so, saying well, three three movements? Yeah, as far as yeah, and as far as like the arc of the intensity and how 
each of the three timelines eventually gets woven into to each other to meet up mm-hmm. sort of for okay. um yeah but so anyway for the score they uh, it was really hard to figure this out i'm not really sure because <laughs> there's so the they okay one one thing they had in the score was uh the ticking which kind of has been in a lot of his scores recently they used it for uh inception sherlock holmes like ticking Mm -hmm. has kind of become a A one of the things (laughs) yeah sort of (laughs) whether it's a good thing or not i'm not sure but um Uh, this ticking was kind of special though it was yeah because christopher nolan gave Hans Zimmer his watch to record. He said that like this watch specifically had a kind of relentless, incessant quality to it, the way it sounded, I guess. <laughs> um, so they, that was one of the starting points for the score. And then the, another thing they used was um, they employed this technique of like a shepherd tone. It's called, so where it sounds like, I don't know, there's a couple ways of explaining it. One way is like a visual, uh, you know, the barber, a barber pole outside of a barber shop, how it rotates. And it looks like the red and blue lines are always rising. Right. Even though they're not moving. So that's kind of the visual version of a shepherd tone. Mm. So it's where you have l- layered sounds, um, working together to kind of always create this endless rise, this endless rising modulating sound. And it sounds like it just keeps going on for infinity. Uh, like one example, um, what do you call it? The, the bat in Batman, the, uh, I don't know what you call it, his motorcycle thing. Oh, his bat, bat motorcycle thing. The engine, yeah. like in Chris Nolan's one, the engine, uh, is always rising. So that was one of the first times they used the shepherd tone. And so it's kind of a technique that he sort of keeps coming back to. But for this one, they used it to really um, kind of be a nonstop, relentless force of sort of impending doom that these <laughs> these people... <laughs> These soldiers on the beach and in the air and everything were constantly facing and yeah, um, a lot like the the watch that keeps nagging them. Yeah, so if you break it down, there's like to get the shepherd tone, you have a top line. They're all set. All there's like okay, you could do it as three, um, in three octaves, pretty much. And the first, the top octave, the high octave. It starts off where you hear it, and then as it goes up the scale, it eventually fades to nothing. So you have that layer, and then the layer right under it, the middle octave, is uh, it stays a constant, uh, constant volume. So you always hear that one as it goes up the scale, and then the octave under that, it. Uh, it fades in from nothing so you don't hear it at first and then it grows louder as it travels up the octave Mm -hmm. so you have the top layer 
and the middle layer and then the bottom layer the middle layer the volume stays the same and then the top layer and the bottom layer they fade in and out of each other so when you put them all together this is this is a really complicated way of explaining this i'm not sure <laughs> if it's going to make sense <laughs> but so when you layer them all together the top line disappears as it moves up and the bottom line kind of comes in and takes over so you're always hearing a rise a rise in um in the note mm-hmm. in the notes being played so it tricks your ear and your head kind of gets tricked into thinking that the notes are traveling along the same uh are continuing the same tone and just they keep rising constantly so it's like a trick of the ear that they used to kind of get this relentless modulating sound okay wait i have a question so as they yes, go ahead <laughs> what is your question sir <laughs> you in the front all right thanks 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 um so as a top line as a top octave fades out and the bottom line it's going up yeah it go, well it goes up and the bottom line fades in as it's going up does that mean that the middle line gets pushed up to the where the top line was or am i thinking of this no. all wrong it just keeps repeating <laughs> Okay. Like so when you get to the mm-hmm. top it jumps down. The middle line jumps down basically. Okay. But because you're hearing the top one and the bottom line fade in and out, mm-hmm. like mix mix with each other and fade out, right. You don't notice that the middle line actually returned back to where it started from. That's it's really weird. That's trippy. It sounds it sounds like it shouldn't work and that you shouldn't be able to fall for something so silly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's really hard to demonstrate on a piano. Uh, uh, but, but watch the movie and you will get tricked. You I will guarantee notice you. It. Yeah. yeah. If you feel like you're constantly leaning forward on the mm-hmm. edge of your seat, that's probably because there's a shepherd tone going on. Yeah. yeah. It's really effective. Yeah. And it's a cool technique. And mm-hmm. There is one thing uh, that was really annoying because I couldn't figure it out. And it's something Hans Zimmer was talking about in an interview. He said, there's some technique that they employed that nobody has ever tried before. And I could not figure out what it is. And it was bothering me. It's not the watch and it's not the shepherd tone because they talked about that. He said there was something that they're not going to talk about because they want to keep it a secret oh man (laughs) and he said whatever it was nobody's ever solved the problem before like okay so every he said every 10 minutes whatever they were trying to do this technique i guess created a problem every 10 minutes in the movie that they had to somehow fix i don't really know i i have no idea what 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 kind of problem would the music be creating every 10 minutes i don't know i thought it i thought it was the watch maybe because if you have the ticking watch constantly going, eventually you're going to run into problems with the yeah. edits and the cuts and everything. Oh, but it's not the watch because they talked about the watch. So mm-hmm. it's something else. I don't really know. And it's going to bother me. But um, yeah, if you guys said, know, please let us, please say something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Because <laughs> he said when Inception came out, like the, the blaring horns, mm-hmm. he said that was written in the script to have those like those loud blaring horns and then 
after they after Inception was released, all of a sudden all these big Hollywood movies started using the blaring horns. And so he said, We're gonna keep this thing a secret. <laughs> what oh, they did okay. in Dunkirk, so okay. it doesn't start popping up everywhere. So I really don't know what it is. Uh, That's kind of a bummer. We're just gonna have to watch it over and over again and see if we can spot it. Yeah, it's not the Shepherd Tone and it's not the watch. So it's something else. Mm. And he said they he he wanted to take the easy way out and stop doing it or something. And then Chris Nolan <laughs> said, No, you started this. We're gonna finish it. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so But yeah, he said it caused a problem like every ten minutes in the film. Which means it probably has to be something with sync. I don't really know. But if you I don't know, if anybody has figured it out, it's a mystery right now. But Oh gee, now you got me curious. Yeah, I know. It's gonna bother me. Mm. Uh, every time I watch the movie I'm gonna be like, oh, was it that thing? Was it that thing? No, it can't <laughs> be. That's too easy. I don't know. But mm-hmm. He said because nobody's tried it before, nobody's solved the problem before. But I guess since they finished the movie, I guess they solved the problem. Or, <laughs> and or the world or, may never know. Oh, the world will know because he's probably going to use it again. Yeah. In well, I saw him do his 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 concert tour thing, and they didn't play they didn't play anything from Dunkirk. But what they did play, they played something from Thin Red Line. Mm-hmm. And it has a ticking clock or uh, ticking um, watch in it also from that score. And so when he was playing that, I thought it was from Dunkirk. Oh, okay. So I don't know. I'm yeah. not sure. I think maybe it was. Yeah, I'm not sure. But Dunkirk, it sounds like it would be a hard score to play live. You know, said, any, any yeah, I, yeah, I know. Yeah. He said Dunkirk was the hardest film he's worked on with. Chris Nolan. He yeah. said that was one of the most challenging ones. Because from a and technical he said it was standpoint, like 11, something like eleven months that they worked on it. Holy cow! Or he thought it was a. Or he thought it was seven at first, and then somebody told him, "No, you were actually on it for eleven months." <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, the so a lot of the score for that one was the the modulating shepherd tones and then mm-hmm. the ticking and this underscore of like pulsating beats that kind of mimic the heartbeat of the of the soldiers and switching between the air and the, and the sea i almost said the air and space we're not quite <laughs> at star wars yet <laughs> but we're getting there um, yeah and then so there's like another uh, like a melodic theme that comes in so the melodic theme is kind of mapped out Early on, throughout uh, throughout the film, in different little little bits, and then you don't really hear hear the whole theme uh, manifest until the the civilian ships start to arrive, and then they see them on the horizon. So that's the first the first instant instance where that happens. Okay, and then the second time the theme uh, kind of really kicks in is when Tom Hardy's plane, the last the last scene, is when he's <laughs> gliding endlessly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he takes out one more plane. Yeah. It was kind of a stretch. I don't... <laughs> no, it could happen. 
Uh, it depends how high you start, but okay. Okay, so where he's gliding endlessly, and then he saves the day one more time. Um, that's when, and then he lands, or his his plane. Uh, we see his plane landing. That's when the theme kicks in again, like mm-hmm. the actual melodic theme. Um, and the horn is holding out the melody. Um, and the melody kind of reminded me a little bit of Interstellar. It was the same. Uh, it was not the same, but I mean, it was uh, kind of followed the same movement as it and the long held out horn melody notes. But anyway, um, so when that happens, he he like finally develops that theme into um, into the scene that we see. So where he's landing the plane and before he gets captured, he sets sets a Spitfire on fire. <laughs> he sets the Spitfire on fire so that the, uh, the German soldiers don't get a Spitfire before they capture him. Because he knows he's going to get captured because everybody else is gone and he's behind the enemy line. And mm-hmm. so. so it's not exactly a heroic theme. It's more... Um, it's more kind of like he knows he did his job and he just has to deal with whatever is going to happen next oh. so it's not heroic at all but it's um, kind of melancholy uh, kind of sad because we know he like because of him, he saved a lot of people on the beach and prevented yeah, people from getting blown up. Yeah, it was almost thirty thousand. And, and now he's there's yeah. So now he ran out of fuel. There's nothing he can do. So it's kind of like he's just accepting his fate. And mm-hmm. but it was a, I like that melody. It was really strong. And because it was used so sparsely in the film, I think it was really effective at the points where they did use it. Uh, at the end, pretty much. That's when you finally hear the full theme manifest. And that theme comes out of like the modulating uh, siren sounds that have been happening throughout the whole film. Yeah, I thought it was really effective. And one thing that the... One thing that Hans Zimmer did say, he thought they got right with the film. And one of the things that they were trying to achieve going into it was they wanted to kind of like merge and blur the line between the soundtrack and the the sound effect sounds and the film. They tried to get that all to feel like one thing and not so much, okay, here's a film, here's the sound effects, here's the music. They tried to blend all of that together so you couldn't really tell where one starts and where the other ends. That also kind of has to go in with the idea of the three timelines how they all mix together so it was a really like well thought out approach that they had going into it and yeah when you're watching it it's really hard to tell whether what you're hearing is like a plain sound effect or the music and it's kind of offsetting it's uh it was definitely one of the more intense scores that he's done and I think it was really effective. I was really, really, I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because usually, 
Usually I'll download. It's not the, a pretty uh, melodic score, though. It's not. It's not. There's nothing. It doesn't. That's not. Not the point of it. But <laughs> yeah. But usually I'll download yeah. the, the the score of the album and just listen to it throughout my day. And I had a hard time listening to this one because, you know, I would listen to yeah. it while I'm walking to class or something, and I would get anxious. <laughs> oh god! Somebody following me! Yeah. Oh no! Like I, was, yeah. I feel this anxiety start to build up, and I was like, "Okay, I can't. I gotta stop listening to this and try a Shape of Water or something." <laughs> <laughs> Let's listen to some accordion now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was one of the goals they had to merge merge the the movie and the music as best they could. And I know it's up to you if you think they did a good job with that, but I yeah. think I, mean, I think it, what they were able to come up with was a step towards that, definitely. When we watched it, it sounded really good because we watched it at um, the ArcLight, right? Yeah, that was in in San Diego, California. Yeah, with their Dolby in their Dolby Atmos theater mm-hmm. on the IMAX screen. Or yeah. uh, I don't know if it's it's not IMAX at ArcLight. It's not but IMAX, but it's it's Dolby um, Dolby so Atmos. I, yeah, I think they do up the, the the screen size just for Dolby. Yeah, but it's not like an IMAX. It's more. Um, it's bigger than the regular ones, but mostly the Dolby Atmos that focuses on the sound. Yeah, so their really, thing with the Dolby Atmos is we're not trying to blare the volume at you so loud, but it's more of how crisp and detailed can the speakers be. So it's not a volume thing; it's like a clarity thing. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and they sound clear. You can tell a difference. Yeah. By the way, we're not sponsored or anything by ArcLight. Um, yeah. This is just this is just a theater that we. <laughs> yeah. Not yet. So ArcLight, if you're listening, <clears throat> wink, wink. <laughs> this is just a theater that no, this we is like a, going to. Yeah. Yeah, and then they're one of the few theaters also that has the 70 millimeter uh, projectors. Right. Mm-hmm. So when they did the Hateful Eight. They were one of the theaters around here that uh, could show the actual film projection of it. It's nice to see some movement back towards, you know, a actual film. Yeah. But anyway, you know, what's, speaking we have one of score speaking about, of right? classic films, you like that segue? Speaking of classic films, we have Star Wars: The Last Jedi, directed by Ryan Johnson and composed by John Williams. Yeah. Who John Williams composed all the other seven movies for Star Wars? The you have the classics, and then you have the prequels, and he's also composing the sequels. Yeah, he did. What was it? He was on Force Awakens, and yes. then he they uh, the story he tells is they called him, and then he asked uh, if Daisy Ridley was going to be in the next one when they asked if he wanted to do the new one. Yeah. He was like, I like Daisy Ridley. And then they said, yeah. And he was like, okay, great. I'll do it. <laughs> like, that's a good condition. <laughs> yeah, he's, um, it's, it's interesting because he's slated also to do the Han Solo standalone movie. Oh, yeah. But mm-hmm. he didn't do Rogue One. Oh, that's right. That Michael Giacchino. Yeah. He didn't do Rogue One. Yeah. You know, that was, I think that was the first one he didn't do. Yeah. Which I kind of see why he sticks to the original story. 
Well, I'm not exactly sure what the story is, so I'm not going to speculate on that. (laughs) (laughs) I also don't know if he... Does he... I should have looked this up, but I don't know if he actually... There's. I don't think he writes in a computer. Uh, I think he still writes on paper. I think... I'm betting he does. (laughs) Yeah. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. I, he he did a concert here with the San Diego Symphony where he conducted some of his stuff. Um, so I got to go see that a couple weeks ago. That was really awesome. Yeah. Man, yeah. but looking at... So he John, told some funny stories. Mm-hmm. Oh, like what? What kind of stories did about he tell? About Star Wars. I'll tell you later, but we should start talking about the score for this Okay, one. okay, okay. Talking about the score. Let's see. Ray's theme comes back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray's theme, yeah. Ray's theme, Kylo Ren's theme. Those are the big ones that come back. Um, also, Poe's theme, which is from the first movie, or sorry, the first. Poe uh, has a theme. Poe has a theme. Yeah. What? Finn doesn't really have a theme though. Mm. Uh, but one of the one of the things that mm. you know John Williams is known for, he's known for creating these motifs that are specific for each character. Yeah, and a motif is like it's a a four bar phrase, you know, and in 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 music that that's attached to any of these characters or ideas or objects, um, and these motifs are shaded differently depending on the situation and the surrounding conditions that that character, idea, or object finds themselves. Yeah, in. so you, yeah, one of the ways you can color the themes is which instruments you're using or mm-hmm. which combination of instruments. So yeah. one of the like popular not popular. One of the uh, iconic, like Star Wars combinations um, for instruments are the brass, the brass, the brass chord sounds. The horn, solo horn, is a right. huge one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, what is it? The combination of the like flutes and oboes. The way he. The way he, um, I don't, we don't. I don't know how technical we want to get. The way he, go ahead, just be. Just the way go he ahead. harmonizes those, um, it's like he's created a signature Star Wars sound with those. The way right. he harmonizes them and the way he groups all the instruments together, he uses some sort of odd pairings sometimes, like horns with flutes and stuff and. Mm-hmm. So that stuff comes back, and well, I, I mean, since we're already getting technical, these motifs that I was talking about earlier—they're called light motifs, L-E-I-T motifs. Um, we do get a lot of new themes in the in this next movie, the Star Wars Eight in the trilogy, the Last Jedi. Yeah, the Last Jedi. Yeah, because um, we have Luke's exile, which is it's. It, it seems like a, a kind of a variation of Luke's actual theme. Yeah, it, it's like a little teaser of his actual theme without mm-hmm. playing the whole theme. And then it's a broken down version of his theme. Yeah. Uh, and then, But uh, it does come back. His whole theme finally plays out at the end. We right? do. Yeah, because his theme is kind of intermixed with the, the, the Force theme. Yeah, mm-hmm. because yeah. well, I'll talk about that later. But the 
other some other themes new themes that we get are um there's one for rose she was a big character in this movie so she ends up getting her own theme and then general holdo's um sorry general holdo she gets a theme which she's a lady in purple that ends up taking charge after um princess leia's and laura dern hosp- right hospitalized yeah laura, D- laura dern I actually, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm just going to say that Holdo's theme is one of the coolest ones, I think. From because, the movie? Yeah, yeah, from the movie. Because you hear, you only hear her theme really, really stand out when, um, at the end of the movie, when the the transports are making their way to the escape planet. And yeah. the First Order is uh, firing upon their main ship. Mm-hmm. And then the first order, they realize, okay, these transports—they're leaving, they're escaping, so we gotta get them too. So Holdo, she maneuvers, she turns around, and then she light speeds right into General or um, Supreme Snoke's Leader ship. Snoke's ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which um, we haven't talked about this yet, but there was a lot of um, the movie theaters when they were showing Star Wars The Last oh, Jedi, yeah. they had to put signs in the theater that it was showing that the sound is not broken. Because when Laura Dern, uh, General Holdo's, Holdo, when she light speeds into Snoke's ship, it's just quiet. You, all, you only see the effects. Um, there's no sound, yeah. Yeah, there's absolutely no sound, <clears throat> no music. And it's kind of, it was like, it was super dramatic and cool. I thought it was really effective in the theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I didn't think anything was broken. I knew it was yeah, supposed to be know. like that. I don't know I why people thought that. I think they needed to give the disclaimer. It doesn't last that long. Mm-mm. But, yeah, yeah, I thought that was a cool technique. Um, but, yeah, I I was talking to Mark about this, and he, he kind of, hmm? he wasn't all the way satisfied, completely satisfied with the score for Last Jedi. But I, there wasn't anything really new about it. It just sounds like the typical Star Wars, um, the typical Star Wars sound rehashing of old melodies and everything. Well, I mean, there's new melodies, obviously, but yeah, I, I don't know. It wasn't. That's I guess that's what I thought at first. Um, yeah. But when I when I was just yeah, watching, but then it. there's the thing where I was. You know how they, every time they redo like a Marvel superhero movie, like Spider-Man, for example, that's been like redone three times. <laughs> every time they redo it, they come up with new themes and everything. And that gets really annoying. Yeah. Because uh, like with the Danny Elfman, when he did the, was it the latest Justice League movie? One of the things he wanted to do was use John Williams Superman theme and his Danny Elfman's old uh, Batman theme. Right. Because they were like, why? Or his argument was, why are we, why do we always have to come up with new themes? Like James Bond, that whole film series got it right where they use the same theme and it's, it's the same character. So why should we have to come up with new themes and reintroduce new themes to an audience all the time? But, um, but I don't know why I don't really, which is what they're doing for Star Wars because John Williams, yeah, he's 
He's using the same themes for each character, for each idea. He even has yeah. a theme for the Force. And then, but it's yeah. just when we when we're introduced to a new character like Rose, for example, she was okay. She was a main character in Episode Eight. Yeah, I know. She has yeah. a. I mean, since she's a new character, she gets a new theme. And I'm assuming yeah, good for her. I'm assuming if she makes an appearance <laughs> in the uh, in the ninth movie, the ninth yeah, episode, her theme will get more developed and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, I think what I did like though, I do like Ray's theme mm-hmm. a lot. That's one of my favorites of the new theme and everything. But yeah. I don't. Did he? I like Kylo Ren's theme. He didn't really. He didn't really do much for Ray's theme in this movie. <sighs> I don't know. Yeah, it's true. I they did a lot the the most the I think the the the, the um they did a lot more stuff with the forces theme like the force has a theme uh, it's, mm. its motif is like the um da dum one four dum 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 yeah, so that's the force theme. Yeah. So, so you think he developed well, that more or I think not more time he, with that he didn't one? really develop it more. He just used it differently than before because we always see that theme played mm. alongside Luke Skywalker. Right? Yeah. You know, Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Anytime anytime Luke is doing something heroic or or using the force kind of. But then there's a scene where um, Snoke is bridging Ray and Kylo Ren's minds, uh, yeah. and I think he does that. I think three times, and the third time, Kylo and Ray they end up touching hands, like a, I guess a whatever force touch, <laughs> and a, like some sort of apple thing. <laughs> um, but as as they're touching hands, you you hear the force motif. Da, 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 yeah. Really softly. So what does that mean? I don't know. I thought I'm just does pointing that mean it out Ray because it's kind of taking over. I think. I think it's, the force it's a good theme theory. is usually related to. Is usually not related to the dark side at all. No, it's not. It's related to I like the main. That means it has the main Jedi at the time. So. Okay, so is he setting up Ray as taking over as the new Jedi generation sort of thing? I think so, yeah. That because, might be what's happening. Because you hear you hear for Luke Skywalker mostly in the beginning of the movie, and then yeah. at that moment during that force touch, for lack of a better term. Um, force touch. <laughs> you, hear it, you hear it in Ray's context, which you haven't really yeah. heard before. <clears throat> so it, it's like... Mm. We get a hint of a motif for the character relationship between Ray and Ren, uh, Kylo Ren, to see, you know, what might Ray develop. Ray and Ren. <laughs> <laughs> what um, if they realized how close their names were when they were writing this? I know, yeah. <laughs> Who's, was it? Can I just uh, say there is some really bad writing in this movie. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. <laughs> I don't care. I'm gonna say it. Like the little part with the dice where we try to make that this special thing that has always been there with Han Solo's dice that have been hanging in his Millennium Falcon cockpit for yeah I don't know eight eight movies or so but we've and never seen it and it's supposed to mean this huge thing to us and mm-hmm. it's like this means absolutely nothing right now but it was in it was on the Millennium Falcon for all the other movies 
it's just it wasn't something that they focused on you know we, we no, never it saw, wasn't we never saw it it but it was there i'm pretty sure it was there i don't know about that okay but Maybe, anyway who knows but i don't know some st- like little stuff like that bothered me maybe that's why i didn't like it okay i thought i i hmm and i, I think chewy should have eaten that chicken yeah. I wouldn't have felt bad. Yeah, what are those, like, little penguins? Little porgs? <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, back to music. My yeah, bad. back to the music. I had to get that. Get I, that off I have one more thing to say about the force motif, and then I'll stop. Okay. I like the... Uh, they, John Williams, he used it really well at the end of episode eight when, when Luke is on the rock, and it's the last time we see Luke... And Luke is looking at the the, the binary sunset, the two suns mm-hmm. setting at the same time. And John Williams, he brings back that classic, yeah, that same force motif, and with almost very similar orchestration and instrumentation, um, mm-hmm. and like as he used in A New Hope. Williams, he uses that same theme in A New Hope when Luke is looking at, again, another binary sunset on Tatooine. Before he leaves his yeah. planet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or he's deciding, do I join this old guy or not? Yeah. So kind of kind of bookending mm-hmm. the, the life cycle of, of you know, Jedi Master Luke. Yeah. Yeah, and I that was pretty effective. I will I, give you that. It was super effective. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, whatever. It's like, uh, <laughs> you got me by the heartstrings, John Williams. Yeah, yeah, I I liked it. That part. Yeah, <laughs> and oh, then, that was funny. That reminds me of what? Go ahead. No, go ahead. It reminds you of what? That Tell me a story he told at the concert. He was uh, he said so for the first movie. He wrote like a love theme between Luke and Leia because George Lucas didn't tell anybody what was going to happen and they had no indication that there was going to be a second movie or anything. So John Williams wrote a love theme and then he was all like, by the time the second movie happened, he's like, oh, okay, so I guess I have to write a new love theme between <laughs> between uh, for Han Solo and Leia. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, so I wonder, did, did he have to backtrack for that and, you know, just totally change the theme for the relationship no, between Luke and No, it's still in there. No, I mean, he still uses that mm-hmm. that theme throughout the thing, which is nice, I guess, because it's turned into, like, a sibling love kind of thing. Yeah. Bond. Cute stuff. Yeah. Um, but he was like, yeah, I wrote a love theme. That's supposed to be a love theme. And, yeah. oops. <laughs> it's your fault, George Lucas. Let me just, let me just scribble out a new one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah which I'm sure you can do that in like five minutes <clears throat> yeah but there's another theme that he brings back from the original trilogy he brings it back what's in, that uh, it's the rebel fanfare that oh theme, yeah yeah um you're gonna have How's to play it, it. you're gonna have to play it mm-hmm. yeah but it's brought back from the original trilogy at the end of episode 8 when the the resistance is now in you know they're all they can all fit in the millennium falcon that's how much they've been whittled down <laughs> yeah. to 
<laughs> yeah. But they escape. And since there there's even a line Ray says she instead of regarding their group as the resistance, she calls them the rebels now. So it makes sense that John Williams is now bringing back that rebel fanfare motif into the new the new yeah. this new trilogy where they're starting to become the rebels again. So yeah. the resistance becomes the rebellion. These are just little semantics, but it makes a difference when you're writing music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So well, also, a- do you think who do you think is going to win? Do you think he's going to win? I don't think he's going to win. Uh, he might win. I don't know. He might. I'm not even sure the last time he's won was. Uh, let me see. I'm not sure. Schindler's anyway, List. Okay, so for the... Oh, whoa, that was a long time ago. Yeah, that was. Hmm. Yeah. Schindler's List. That was back in... I kind of don't... 93. I don't think he's going to win, though. I don't think so, because I don't think it's different enough from everything else. You know, if you take it in the context of everything else, the other four movies, Phantom Thread, Shape of Water, Dunkirk, and Three Billboards... Yeah. It's... I don't think he's going to win. Yeah, it doesn't it's, it doesn't stand out, I don't think. So who do you think is going to win? Who do I think is going to win or who do I want or For, or who do I want to win? Uh, let me see. Who do you want to win? Musical okay. score. 2018 Oscar nominated original score. Who do you think or who do you want to win? When they open the envelope and say the name, I want it to be Dunkirk. Oh man. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say Dunkirk. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Probably. Let me guess. They might. Okay. We're agreed. I think. I think it should win. Or I want. I. I, I'm going to say I want to win because the the score was so technically done well and thought out. You know, they put so much effort into into blending all these things: the the sound effects, the film, and the score. Yeah, I think really can't. You can't tell those three three different things apart. Yeah. Yeah, for and me so that made a big difference. It, I think <laughs> it takes storytelling to the next level. That's why I wanted yeah. to win. The other thing was this: it's written like an indie film, like this really experimental thing with three timelines and how they jump back and forth between them. It's yeah. it's like an experimental kind of indie film that they made, and what they tried to do with the score. Uh, goes along with that, and I think, uh, yeah. So that's the one I want to win. Dunkirk, Hans that's, Zimmer. That's the one we both want to win. So yeah, who do you think? Uh, who do you think will win, though? Um, I think Shape of Water is going to win. <laughs> I think Desplat's going to win. I was going to say Desplat also. Yeah. Um. I don't know. It could be three billboards. I don't know why three billboards would win, though. There's barely any music. <laughs> I don't I mean, care. I'm just going to say it. it. I don't think that one should win. That one should not win. I don't think so either. I'm not even sure why it's nominated, really. Mm-hmm. If Des Blatt wins, though, this will be a second um, second Oscar. He won previously for Grand Budapest Hotel in 2014. Oh, nice. So it would, this, well, would be, this would be... I would be I'd be His happy second. with it if he won still. I like the score for that one. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I just don't think it did 
it didn't really it didn't really push uh scoring mm-hmm. anywhere but it wasn't a bad score either yeah so, i agree he put he that's kind of where i fall with it he put a lot of work into this score and he even said that i th- he thought this was the most beautiful one that he's worked on um yeah i really like the melodies yeah i agree he did and a, me being a heavy melody guy mm-hmm. he did a fantastic I like to job. write melodies yeah so i think i'd yeah if he wins that'd be great mm-hmm. if three I, billboards wins that will not be great no <laughs> <laughs> because okay then i could just There's lower my less standards than 20 minutes of music in that film yeah yeah. Well, you know, if that wins, then we could lower our standards and just say, okay, well, all we need to do to be successful is write 20 minutes of music for a film. Now, it depends on what the <laughs> film calls for, obviously, but anyway. Yeah. But I want Dunkirk to win. Yeah, me too. Well, we'll see. When did the or Oscars, by the way? Either one. Uh, in March. Beginning of March. Oh, March 4th. Right, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. so the other category, the... The original songs. We have mm-hmm. Mighty River from Mudbound. Mystery Love from uh, Call Me By Your Name. Remember Me from Coco. Stand Up for Something from Marshall. And then This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. Uh, I, I really don't know for this one. Yeah, neither do I. I The one that I want to win. I, I liked Mighty River. I thought that was a good song. Yeah, I like Mighty River. I also liked Stand Up for Something. I do like This Is Me. Eh. And and I like This Is Me. Um, but the one that I want to win, I think I'm going to say just This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. Yeah, me too. I want mm-hmm. that one to win. I want Kayla Settle to win. Yeah, yeah, me too. And Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. Also, but, that's the only thing that Greatest Showman was nominated for, which is really disappointing, and I want them to win. Yeah, I want them to win something. So, they better win for this song. The one that I think will win, though, I'm gonna say Mighty River. I think Mighty River will win. Yeah, I don't know. Remember Me might win from Coco. From Coco, I think that one might win. I'm not sure. Remember, Remember Me was. I really can't tell with this category. It just felt like a singer songwriter song. Yeah, well. I don't know. We'll see. Yep. We're going to have to play, you know, I'm going to be on the edge of my seat for this one. Yeah. But I hope Greatest Showman wins. <laughs> Me too. Anyway, that was our little chat about the 2018 Oscar nominations for original score, <clears throat> Dunkirk, and uh, <laughs> the original <laughs> song. <laughs> Yeah, thank you guys for listening. Uh, I know Mark and I can kind of we can kind of talk a little bit for a long time. Yeah, this was a little longer than I meant <laughs> meant it to go on for. But there's surprisingly we had a lot more to talk about than we thought. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, means, means the, you guys have stuff to listen to. Yeah, it's close. So if you haven't listened to the soundtracks for these, um, definitely give some of them a listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a yeah. really wide variety this year. So. Yeah, they I don't know. It could go either way. They got a good spread. It's got a good spread, you know? We got that spread. <laughs> you got the accordion over here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but everybody, 
Wish for Dunkirk. Or whatever you want. I don't really care. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, so yeah, let's wrap this up. Cool. Thank you guys for listening to the Akiyama Brothers Song to Screen podcast. If you want to hear more about us, you can check us out at akiyamamusic.com. Um, you can from there you can find our blog, our podcast, even some sample libraries that we've done in the past. Um, some you sample know, scores, he means. Sorry, sample scores. Yeah, you know. Yeah. See how we stack up next to John Williams and Hans Zimmer. No, uh, don't do that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> We would love to hear your feedback <laughs> on this episode and the whole podcast in general. You can always rate us on Instagram. iTunes. Sorry, not Instagram, on iTunes and Overcast and probably any other third party that you listen to. Uh, yeah. But, yep, you know, thank you guys. We always appreciate your support. Oh, and also, if you want to sign up for our newsletter, that we're going to start sending that out to all of, oh, our, yeah. all of our big supporters. Yeah, and we'll give you some extra information and stuff yes Uh uh-huh thanks for listening we're looking forward to recording the next episode yeah all right we will let you know what that is anyway Uh uh-huh all All right right, talking to you have a good night yep you too bye Bye bye-bye